You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Mananan, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Legends, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time we discussed the foundation of the colony at Jamestown, mostly through the stories of Captain Sir Christopher Newport and John Smith. We left the Virginians there in a precarious situation. There were about 200 settlers alive, probably fewer at this point, and they continued to die at an alarming rate. They were low on everything, ammunition and fuel, space, but above all, they were low on food. The people were starving at Jamestown, and they were unable to do anything about it. They couldn't hunt, or fish even, due to the swampy nature of their land and to the hostility of the neighboring Powhatan people who would attack them if ever they left. The Powhatan had formerly been friends, but... They were hostile toward the English at this point due to the incompetence of their leadership and the arrogance of the English people. This also prevented them from trading for food. The Powhatan had been their trading partners, but now the only people willing to trade with the English were almost a month away. The colonists were, at this point, relying exclusively on imports of supplies from England. They were growing their own food, but that still had some time before it could provide nearly enough to feed everyone. In early 1608, things were looking bleak for the people in Jamestown. Then, their expected supply ships failed to arrive. That fleet, led by Christopher Newport on the flagship Sea Venture, carried food and 400 additional settlers, and the man who was going to be the governor of Virginia. Thomas West the third Baron de Loire, is going to be the first real political player in the story of Jamestown, but his role in today's story is going to be minimal. At least, it's going to be brief, but it will be impactful. The Sea Venture and the other ships in the fleet intended to bring supplies to America wrecked off the coast of Bermuda. All of those supplies that were intended for Virginia were stuck there in the middle of the Atlantic. 
When we left off, I had some harsh words for John Smith. My biases were front and center, mostly due to Smith's many, many failings in administration. But even more than that, really, was his tendency to tell untruths, is the polite word, but they were lies, they were propaganda. And today I tried to be fair to John Smith, I really did, but I'm going to warn you, that bias is only going to get worse. This is episode 153, The Scum of Men. Let's begin with John Smith's famous proclamation to the people of Jamestown. He that will not work shall not eat. Now that's a Bible reference, but Smith used it in a much more nefarious fashion. It was little more than a clever way for John Smith to deflect blame for the suffering of the people of Jamestown onto the colonists, to deflect it away from himself. Agriculture takes time, and admittedly, the people of Jamestown wasted a lot of time digging for fool's gold and forcing the Poetan to farm for them. Had they focused initially on growing crops, they would have plenty of food at this point, but they didn't. Now that they realized the situation they were in, though, it was still taking time for them to grow enough food to feed everyone, especially since more people had arrived. All of this, on some level, very much appears to be the fault of John Smith. So when their dear leader, and by this point John Smith was president of the council, when he says that he who does not work will not eat, that raises questions. Primarily, eat what? Their rapidly dwindling rations, they didn't have enough food to feed everybody. And John Smith didn't count the gathering of roots and herbs as work, and that's what most of the men needed to do to survive. Of course, John Smith made sure that those who had absolutely essential jobs got some of those rations. You know, those who, along with John Smith, sat around tables deliberating and signing papers they got to eat. This began very quickly to look like the darkest days of the Soviet Union. But that took years. And when I say dark, I mean it gets really dark. By 1608, over a hundred people had died at Jamestown, and it was going to get a lot worse. Into all of that, in August of 1609, 300 more settlers arrived. The majority of those settlers were from the wreck of the Sea Venture, back on Bermuda. They'd dismantled their wrecked ships and built two new, smaller vessels to carry them to America. Now, Christopher Newport was still on Bermuda, dealing with the colonization efforts there. But the man in charge of this leg of the voyage was Lord de Loire. He wasn't actually Lord de Loire. He was his son, but when this character becomes a prominent player in our story, we'll be talking about him next time, he will be the Baron de Loire. His job on this venture was to be the governor of Virginia, the acting governor under his father, who was officially governor for life. However, once he arrived there at Jamestown and saw the situation, saw the people starving, and realized that it was a very dangerous place to be, 
Well, because of the wreck, you understand, there were issues to tend to back in England, so he had to set sail, and he did so immediately. Had he done so with the settlers whom he brought with him, and those who were currently starving in Jamestown, you know, it's fine to leave a token force behind with enough food to support themselves, but had he saved all of those people, I would laud the young Lord de Loire as a hero. But that's not what he did. The people wanted to return with him. Those who just arrived looked around and saw how everything was here in Jamestown. They wanted to turn around and leave, but the young lordling forced them to stay. When they tried to leave anyway, he turned his guns and threatened them with violence. Then he turned around and took his ships with him all but one vessel that belonged to a company of independent colonists, and two others that were too small to carry everybody home. And then, a few months later, John Smith was wounded in an explosion in his pack of gunpowder on his hip. He was badly burned, according to every report. I'm not sure I believe any of those reports, but I'm in the minority there. However, you may remember the gift that John Smith gave to Chief Powhatan last time, the gift that was the only thing keeping the colonists alive. But once John Smith left, the gift-giver was gone. Whether or not John Smith's injury was real, whether or not it was a tragic accident or intentionally nefarious, John Smith had just doomed his countrymen. And I'll pile on the horrific tragedy here by telling you that this particular group of colonists was almost entirely made up of families. There were women and children here, including one person I'd like you to take note of. We don't know her name, but we know that she was the 14-year-old daughter of a middle-class London family. Now, put yourself in the shoes of one of those colonists who had just arrived at Jamestown. When you joined the Virginia Company voyage to sail for America, you had high hopes for the future, and you had no idea of the real situation in Virginia. When you found out the reality of that situation, you tried to turn around, but Lord Dewar turned you back and took most of the ships back with him. And then... The president, John Smith, told you of his policy. Those who do not work will not eat, but there's no food anyway, so what are you going to eat? And then that man who gave you that mandate sailed away. He had a whole ship to take him back to England, while you and all of your family and friends are slowly growing hungrier and hungrier. Not only that, some of his closest advisors accompanied him because they were necessary members of his party. You had just been abandoned to starve to death. I'd be angry about that, and the colonists were angry. Many of them were too hungry at this point to do anything about it, but a few of them who had a ship of their own, Plymouth men mostly, took that ship up north where they founded the first colony in what would become New England. Now they did so legally, under the auspices of the other Virginia Company, the Virginia Company of Plymouth. 
nothing would come of that colony, and nothing would come of the Plymouth Company, but those men who left would make it safely back to England. At this point, there were only two ships left in the harbor there at Jamestown, out of a total nine that had been there at one point, and neither of those ships was large. It was a hopeless situation. Now, I can't really condone or say that I agree with what was going to happen next, but I also can't blame those who did it. Donald Shamet writes in his book Pirates on the Chesapeake, quote, By the fall of 1609, the colony, beset by political upheaval, Indian attacks, famine, disease, and weak leadership, was rapidly degenerating into total chaos. Starvation, laced with cannibalism, desertion, a lack of civil authority, and idleness, all but guaranteed the colony's failure. As one contemporary chronicler of the descent into piracy later wrote, and now quoting that chronicler, Unto idleness you may join treasons wrought by those unhallowed creatures that forsook the colony and exposed their desolate brethren to extreme misery. End quote. The unhallowed creatures in question were a small group of men who, when they realized how bad things were in Jamestown, took their guns and marched inland. But they didn't do so to attack the Poetan, they did so to trade with the Poetan. Now this was extremely dangerous. At this point, the Poetan were killing any English people who left their island. But these men managed to talk their way to the chief's eldest son, who, if you haven't figured it out yet, was kind of an emissary. These English sailors had a deal to propose to the Poetan. They were going to trade them the guns that they carried, along with a fair amount of powder and shot, and even show the Poetan how to use them. What they wanted in return was some food, but they weren't doing so for the salvation of Jamestown. Had that been the case, I don't think the Poetan would have agreed. Instead, and this is the juicy bit here, those men were going to take that food and leave. This group of men was still healthy and hale. That, well, that made them dangerous. Most of the people of Jamestown were too weak to fight, and many of those that weren't were women and children. Getting rid of these men without violence was a good deal. So those men were given the food they requested and led back to Jamestown. They were led back under guard, of course, to ensure that no treachery took place, but the Poetan even helped them, under cover of darkness, load that food onto one of their ships. That evening they approached certain men in the colony, a few other kindred spirits, and they offered them a chance to escape. They only offered that to healthy men who knew their way around a ship, or at least knew their way around a musket. And when dawn came, that ship weighed anchor and sailed out of the harbor, into the Chesapeake and out into the Atlantic. Much later, John Smith, writing from his comfortable convalescence with a full belly, would write in tones of deepest indignation, quote, They stole away the ship. They made a league amongst themselves to be professed pirates with dreams of mountains of gold and happy robberies. 
Thus, at one instant, they wronged the hopes and subverted the cares of the colony who, depending upon their return, foreslowed to look out for any further provision. They created the Indians our implacable enemies by some violence they offered. They carried away the best ship which would have been a refuge in extremities. They weakened our forces by subtraction of their arms. They are the scum of men. Failing in their piracy, that being pinched with famine, after their wild roving upon the sea, when their lawless hopes failed, some remained with other pirates they met. The others resolved to return to England, bound themselves by mutual oath to agree all in one report, to discredit the land to deplore the famine, and to protest that their coming away proceeded from desperate necessity. End quote. I know that in any discussion of history I'm supposed to be neutral. I'm supposed to leave my biases at the door, and I know that I'm not that good at it. But I... I really tried here. I tried to look at this from both angles, but I can't. I have to be honest with you. I hate John Smith. I despise him. Let's break down that little passage, shall we? The very first thing he does is deride these pirates for their dreams of mountains of gold, dreams that he made up because he was not there when these men left, he didn't know what was in their hearts, and beyond that, why was the Virginia Company in America in the first place if not for mountains of gold? But of course those riches, those mountains of gold, are for men with pedigrees and sirs on their names, not the filthy commoners left to starve by Smith himself. Then he goes on to blame the pirates for making enemies of the Powhatan people, which they didn't. That was John Smith, who used the chief's son as a human shield. Now he bought peace for them, but he was the one that began the conflict with the Powhatan. And then John Smith denies, or at least attempts to downplay, the famine that his people were suffering. Oh, sure, they're starving a bit, but it's nothing serious. Tighten your belts and haul yourselves up by your bootstraps as any good peasant who knows their place would do. These men instead decided to leave, which, as we will see, is what saved their lives. And then he has the gall, when a few of them return to England with tales of starvation, tales that we know to be true and that John Smith was doing his best to hide from everyone, horrifying, unbelievable tales, John Smith has the gall to accuse them of coming up with a story and unifying behind it. This reminds me of the tactics used by the filthiest sort of politicians all across the world. Those who buy their way into power, or otherwise buy those in power, to ensure that everything stays as beneficial to those at the very top as possible. While people starve all across the world, while people die from needless wars and preventable causes, these people manage to secure all of the world's resources for themselves. That's the point. And that is what John Smith was defending in the Virginia Company. And when a few managed to escape through 
means that I will admit I don't find tasteful. But when they managed to escape and bring tales of the truth of what John Smith and his ilk had done, he painted them as conspirators and liars. He deflects all the blame for things that he was directly responsible for onto these pirates. And it worked. John Smith is still often lionized despite his many abuses as an American pioneer who, let's remember here, was a dashingly handsome blonde that championed the Indian cause. And Pocahontas, who, when Disney makes a movie about it, has to be old enough to be super hot without making it weird, even though it was pretty weird. Well, she fell for her savior, John Smith. That's the story that we're told to believe, and it's a lie all perpetrated by Smith himself. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. George Percy had other opinions on the matter, most notably regarding John Smith and his character. He wrote, quote, "...that many untruths concerning these surroundings have been formerly published, wherein the author hath not spared to appropriate many deserts to himself, which he never performed, and stuffed his relations with so many falsities and malicious detractions." End quote. Another opinion from the 1600s, but a generation or two after John Smith, comes from a man named Thomas Fuller. In his book, The Worthies of England, Fuller wrote that Smith's, quote, perils, preservations, dangers, deliverances, they seem to me almost beyond belief, some 
beyond truth. Yet we have two witnesses to attest them, the prose and the pictures, both in his own book, and it soundeth much to the diminution of his deeds that he alone is the herald to publish and proclaim them. End quote. In fact, everyone who wrote about Captain John Smith had much the same opinion. Smith was an ambitious, unworthy, and vainglorious fellow. But all of these recriminations came as a response to his published journal, a journal that was a bestseller in England. John Smith wrote, in the third person, in defense of the accusations against him, quote, He wisely prevented their policies, though he could not suppress their envies, yet so well he demeaned himself in this business, and his adversaries' malice, and those suborned to accuse him, accused his accusers of subordination. Many untruths were alleged against him, but being so apparently disproved, begat a general hatred in the hearts of the company against such unjust commanders. Many were the mischiefs that sprung daily from their ignorant yet ambitious spirits. End quote. And every time that Smith wrote to refute another accusation added to the chorus of accusations, he had the same defense that they were jealous of his greatness, that they were attempting to bring him down so they could replace him, and that they were, all of them, in league, hunting him as a witch. Still, that was the first recorded act of piracy in the English colonies. Now, of course, there had been acts of piracy involved on every English voyage to the Americas thus far, from Walter Raleigh to Richard Grenville, Christopher Newport, John Smith even. None of them were able to resist the allure of a bit of free plunder. But all of those raids took place elsewhere. None of them in Virginia, usually in the West Indies, but sometimes off the coast of Africa. And to me, all of them ring kind of false, as piracy goes. They were illegal, it was piracy, but they don't feel like pirates. They feel like white-collar crimes. Those were powerful men with lots of money and famous names that were going about their business, setting up a colony, but in the process they saw an opportunity to enrich themselves. An opportunity hundreds of leagues offshore that was not going to arouse any interest back home. If anyone even bothered to notice, these men had powerful backers in the Parliament and in the King's Court. If someone did complain about this bit of piracy, no one who mattered here would face consequences. After all, Lord Muckety Muck of, you know, House Who's It was too big to fail. On the other hand, it's difficult to say what the genuine intentions and actions of these pirates were. On its surface, even if we were to believe John Smith, I might not find their actions moral, or perhaps not even acceptable. But if you were in their shoes, starving to death alongside hundreds of others, and you had a chance to escape, what would you do? But I don't think that we can trust John Smith's account of events there at Jamestown. These men, it very much appears, 
took that ship and returned as quickly as possible to England to warn the people there of what was happening in Jamestown and to attempt to get relief for their fellow colonists. And it was John Smith who, in his many lies to defend his own position, called them liars and had them prosecuted. His fear of taking even the smallest amount of blame led to the death of over 350 people and the unlawful persecution of fifty pirates. The people left at the colony at Jamestown, three hundred of them at this point, were still starving. When relief finally arrived several months later, those three hundred people were almost all dead. There were only fifty left alive, all of them on the brink of death. And how those fifty survived is, well, that's when this story gets really dark. Centuries later, an archaeological dig at the original Jamestown site found a cemetery. A cemetery that had been hidden away by those who brought the relief supplies. Those who realized what had happened and realized that it was their fault and tried to hide it. They built a building on top of the cemetery. That building eventually fell apart, and remains were found underneath. The remains of dozens of people. And among them they found the bones of that fourteen-year-old girl I mentioned earlier. They did a forensic analysis on all of these, and on that fourteen-year-old girl they found signs that are suggestive of, to say they prove it is difficult, but certainly suggest very strongly that she suffered a death very much like that of livestock. That is to say that this girl, in the final days of this initial attempt at the colonization of Jamestown, was butchered, like an animal, for her meat. And she wasn't alone. Others were cannibalized by the cream of Jamestown, the highest-ranking people left in the colony, so that those who mattered would be allowed to survive. That's the fate that John Smith and Lord de Loire, and all of the heads of the Virginia Company, and even to a lesser extent, though I hate to admit it, Christopher Newport, that's the fate that they abandoned the first colonists of Jamestown too. One group of men escaped in an attempt to save their own lives and perhaps the lives of their fellow colonists, while another group forced that fate on them and then lied about it to cover their own skin. The scum of men, indeed. Next time, we're going to continue on with the colony on the Chesapeake as it expands into new territories, and eventually, new colonies. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, or signed up to support the show through the website, which, by the way, at very long last, is finally back up and running at full potential. I'd also like to thank everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family, and everybody who has left us a rating, or a review wherever you listen to the show. 
That helps get the show noticed, and without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.